This is District Sentinel Radio. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the MAYRIP, the Middle East Report Studio in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Today we've got some bonus content for you. We are joined by Alex Yablon. He's a reporter focusing on guns for The Trace at thetrace.org. Alex recently published a few pieces on how the U.S. is flooding the world with guns and how congressional oversight of it all is disappearing. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We want to talk about a number of things that have been revealed in these two reports that you've published. But to start off with, it's usually been in the purview of the State Department to approve these weapons sales, and they're supposed to notify Congress of this stuff. And you've discovered that the State Department isn't really doing that, and they have some pretty uh, incredible explanations for why they haven't. Yeah, I found this pretty extraordinary uh, report from the Department of State's Office of the Inspector General uh, that shows that um, at least in 2018, from late uh, 2017 to the summer of 2018, uh, the officers in the State Department who are supposed to scrutinize applications to export guns are just regularly falling down on the job, approving uh, exports uh, despite a lack of crucial information in the applications, um, and not notifying Congress. So I should give a little bit of context. Uh, Under current law, um, basically gun companies uh, can arrange deals with foreign buyers Uh, But to do so, they have to apply for a license to export from the State Department for every single individual deal. So, you know, say like uh, Sig Sauer or Smith & Wesson wants to sell uh, rifles to a police force in, you know, Colombia, they have to ask the State Department for permission. And the State Department has, uh, according to their official guidance, has a list of a bunch of different criteria they're supposed to consider um, when deciding if they're going to approve this export or not. You know, some things that are sort of similar to just, you know, making sure uh, that there's minimal risk that the guns could be diverted to uh, an unauthorized user, like sold onto a paramilitary force or to drug cartels or just sold on the black market generally. Um, And then they're also supposed to consider whether the deal uh, would further certain foreign policy goals or would, you know, be beneficial to American uh, industry. Um, And they also, if it's a big enough deal, that is to say if it's a deal worth more than $1 million if it comes to just firearms, you know, like rifles or pistols, or more than $14 million for larger military hardware like missiles or vehicles or stuff like that, uh, they have to let the relevant, um, you know, like Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate or uh, the relevant committee in, in the House of Representatives know, and Congress has the authority to slow down or cancel those deals um, at will. Um, So basically what the report says is that uh, at least um, last year they were routinely failing to do any of that. Uh, In 17 out of 21 cases, they did not notify Congress 
and they, you know, said basically they were like, "Whoopsie, we we dropped a zero on the, uh, you know, when calculating the value of this shipment of AR-15s to the Philippines." Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, was a mistake that when the auditors came into their offices, they couldn't replicate, which is extremely suspicious. <laughs> now, in uh, in in some of the data in your article. Uh, there appears to be a jump in small arms sales, uh, at least to Central America, at the start of the Obama years. Uh, is this uh, part of a policy change? Did the U.S. simply react to the Great Recession by relying on arms exports? Uh, what what was going on here, or is this just sort of a coincidence? That's what sources told me. I mean, I was very surprised to see this. Um, when I first looked in the data, I was expecting there to be a spike um, during the, you know, in the first few years of the Trump administration. And there, it is very high, you know, the level of small arms sales to this region that is very troubled and it's very problematic that we're selling guns to these uh, governments uh, is very high under Trump. But the trend really began under Obama. I was also surprised to see how low the level of arms sales were under George W. Bush, who is someone that, you know, we typically don't think of as exercising a lot of restraint when it comes to the proliferation of weapons overseas. Um, but that's what my sources told me that, you know, I talked to some people in the NGO world uh, who met with the Obama administration. Uh, and they basically saw it as a way to juice manufacturing in 2009, um, right when uh, you know Obama first came into the office, into office, and the country was in the depths of recession. Uh, but they stuck with it, you know, right, um, you know, through the remainder of Obama's term, even you know when the te- the recession was technically over, um, and they wanted to pursue. A rule change that would pare back oversight even further, hmm. um, and only abandoned it because of the bad optics after the Sandy Hook shooting. They wanted, didn't want to be seen as, uh, you know, trying to give a, you know, a, a sort of a gift to the gun industry after this horrifying mass shooting of first graders. Um, but the Trump administration has since revived this change, and of course. When they're criticized for it, they say, well, Obama was going to do this. He came really close. So why are you mad that we're doing it? <laughs> well, he didn't do it. Uh, the uh, it, it also came at a time, at least for Honduras in 2009, there was the coup there that the Obama administration supported and also helped arm the government, which uh, then, as you reported, used probably used those arms – uh, to suppress protests against government corruption and such in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, for those of your listeners who might not be aware, uh, in 2009, a, a military coup overthrew Manuel Zelaya, the democratically elected uh, left-leaning president of Honduras. And, um, you know, the U.S. refused to call it a coup, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama pretty much got behind the uh, the the new regime, which claims to be democratic, you know, and and does have elections, but they're generally tainted by fraud. Um, and you know, a lot of people that I spoke to, I did talk to some an activist 
uh, based in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras, um, who talks about he was of the opinion, and this is fairly common uh, among people who are knowledgeable about the reason about the region that the um, the country started descending into chaos. You know, it's has been one of the most violent countries on earth, especially for one not in the midst of a war zone after this coup. Um, the current president, uh, Juan uh, Orlando Hernandez, um, is widely suspected of being totally corrupt. His brother was actually just indicted by the DEA uh, for drug trafficking. Um, and it's widely believed, you know, a, a political scientist who talked to me um, for this story, who studies the region, said, you know, his, his quote was, there's, there's no illusion of a difference in this region between the state and organized crime. But still, we have sold millions of dollars every year, millions of dollars worth every year of firearms to these governments, despite it, the fact that they work with drug traffickers, that they fire on, uh, you know, they, they direct military police to um, fire on protesters, and they, the police forces, when uh, ostensibly conducting, you know, anti-narcotics or anti-gang operations, engage in tons of extrajudicial killings. And w one interesting thing about Honduras is uh, Marco Rubio, as he is on Twitter trying to foment a coup in Venezuela under the guise of uh, caring about democracy. He also has plenty of tweets supporting Juan Orlando Hernandez and the Honduran uh, coup government, including one of Hernandez criticizing Venezuela, which is just uh, uh, like the distillation of the chef kiss meme. Did we figure out what happened at that German dam yet? <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yeah. Well, you know... I, I uh, cynically, you know, ignorance of what is actually going on in the region has never really come with much accountability for U.S. politicians. That's uh, depressingly true. The, 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 but I, I don't want to – we brought up the Obama administration. I don't want to minimize ways that uh, the Trump administration is very much worse and it's not even trying uh, to pretend to care about uh, – uh, stopping the flow of, of arms to human human rights abusers, and they in 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 fact they're going to make it easier. They're going to make it with way this rule easier, change right. To move uh, approval of these gun sales from the State Department to the Commerce Department, Thank which you. Uh, ostensibly would mean that there'd be more focus on helping U.S. manufacturers, I guess the economic bottom line here, than what the State Department was supposed to be looking out for, and they weren't doing such a good job of it, but making sure that these gun sales don't lead to human rights abuses. But at least when the State Department is there, there's at least some acknowledgement that there is some uh, foreign policy component to these weapons sales. It's not just uh, getting U.S. industries uh, to improve their bottom line, because as you note in your article, Alex, there is an ideological bend to where U.S. weapons are shipped. During the Cold War, it was to enemies of communism. Uh, recently, it's been to people who, or to, to nations that are uh, supposedly our allies in fighting terrorism or whatever that is. Um, and and I guess I guess the question is how much worse might this get with the Commerce Department now in charge of this stuff, which is ideological um, than than uh, the State Department. 
So, yeah, it, it could definitely get much worse. Um, basically, there, there are a couple really specific ways it could get worse. So um, the, what they're going to do specifically is uh, right now all semi-automatic firearms and non-automatic firearms, that is, you know, like AR-15 rifles um, and, you know, semi-automatic pistols and then revolvers and shotguns and things like that are classified on something called the U.S. military list. Uh, and they want to transfer those to something called the commerce control list, which is overseen by commerce. So items uh, that are classified on the U.S. military list are, like I said earlier, you know, bound by rules that require notification of Congress. And items on the commerce control list don't have to, don't come with that notification requirement. So, um, and this has, this has repercussions all around the world. Um, you know, for instance, uh, in, in 2017, um, uh, the, or rather 2016, 2016, in the fall of 2016, um, there was an application to ship 26,000 AR-15 rifles to, uh, the Philippines, uh, to the Duterte regime, which I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, is engaged in this sort of like reign of terror that it calls a war on drugs, but involves just, you know, rampant extrajudicial killings of people with no due process, you know, on the order of thousands and thousands of people in the Philippines. Um, and Democratic Senator Ben Cardin uh, exercised his authority to cancel that deal. Um, now, uh, if this rule change to give control over these exports to the Commerce Department finally goes through, um, Cardin and his colleagues would not even get notified of this. They wouldn't even know that these deals are happening. Uh, so they couldn't cancel them, you know, uh, if they were concerned about being used in, say, a murderous uh, campaign of, of uh, killings in the street by police forces that are subject to no oversight. Uh, the other big problem is that uh, uh, the Commerce Department doesn't have the same kind of staff uh, that can check up on on gun sales once they've already been clean. One, once they've you know once the application has been submitted or once the application you know has been approved and the guns have been shipped. Uh, right now, the State Department has a system. Uh, that I describe in my reporting as totally inadequate, but it's still in place uh, to, you know, check that the people who actually applied to buy the guns overseas are the people who actually receive them and use them. And, and the Commerce Department just doesn't have the staff in all of the Western Hemisphere, in places like Cambodia and Laos and Burma, in all of Africa except for Egypt, to perform these kinds of checks. And they say that they're basically just going to parachute in people who don't know the region or don't necessarily specialize in arms deals. Um, so, you know, it, it, it greatly increases the risk that these guns could be diverted to criminals or to uh, paramilitaries or to terrorists. To, to uh, give a little color to this, um, last year we reported on an email that the Commerce Department sent out. And uh, it's not 
fully about small arms, but it's it's very much directly related. It was uh, the, this. It was uh, some arm of the Commerce Department. The email was titled "Thailand equals sales potential for U.S. aerospace defense cybersecurity suppliers." The email literally praised an arms race. <laughs> okay, it said, "It said, quote, the budget appropriations for the Thai military have continued to increase every year to maintain combat readiness, neutralize the regional arms race within ASEAN, which is Southeast Asia, uh, and upgrade the country's armed forces." And by the way, Thailand has been ruled by a, a, a military government since 2014 too. So the Commerce Department is not even trying. It's not even pretending to try. Bart Simpson once said he would try to try. They are not even trying to try. Right. Well, that's not their mission. Yeah, and that's really, that's, you know, kind of the, the, the more fundamental troubling aspect of this is that the State Department and the Commerce Department have really different purposes. The Commerce Department exists to increase U.S. business, um, you know, at home and overseas. And isn't really charged with thinking about the consequences of increasing that business, especially when it comes to weapons sales. Uh, the State Department, um, you know, well, there's, you know, ample reason to be skeptical of their claims that they, that they uh, you know, do consider human rights when looking uh, at whether or not to improve arms sales. Uh, at least they have to say that they do. And that has some kind of effect on whether or not they uh, they they approve arms deals, or at least you know, uh, or or perform checks to make sure that they are you know the weapons aren't being used in uh, human rights abuses or being trafficked. When it comes to Congress's role in this and how that might have provoked these chances or changes, I mean, until recently, there has been some concern about weapon shipments to, to Saudi Arabia and stuff because of what's going on in Yemen. But for the most part, has, has, hasn't Congress been a, a rubber stamp for most of these weapon sales until recently? Absolutely. I mean, thousands and thousands of arms deals are approved every year, and the number that get held up by Congress is usually in the single digits per year, the low single digits. Um, they don't necessarily get canceled a lot of the time. They'll often just be delayed. Um, but yes, I mean, it, and it's pretty bipartisan. You know, it. it the only uh, rarely do you see Republicans. Um, uh, uh, you know, placing holds on arms deals or canceling them. But it's not like Democrats are much better. You know, you'll occasionally have someone like Ben Cardin uh, uh, place a hold, but it's, you know, it's pretty rare. So with transparency over arms deals even uh, more abysmal than it, they than it was before, how is it how are reporters like you and how how are how can the general public track arms sales now are we basically going to have to rely on house democrats uh, subpoenaing which as we know uh, may may not happen right um well it's pretty hard right now um i mean there's in some there'll, there'll be some sort of indirect measures uh that won't necessarily change um, for instance, I, uh, you know, I was able to get a lot of really interesting data from the Commerce Department and, you know, the United Nations uh, Comtrade 
system which tracks like international customs data, um, which will show you, you know, the dollar value of say assault rifles or uh, ammunition uh, shipped from the United States to any given country in the world. And the census data will let us look at you know what particular state those weapon sales uh, came from. But that's always after the fact. That's once the guns have already been delivered. And um, it, the, the notifications to Congress were basically the only way that uh, lawmakers or the general public could have any idea about what was being proposed beforehand. Um, and even that was totally inadequate. You know, they, 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 they don't say these notifications just say usually, usually they just say, you know, this is a, a sale worth more than a million dollars. But, you know, is it a, is it a million dollars? And, you know, is it a million and one dollars worth of AR-15s or is it 50 million dollars worth? Um, we don't usually know. We don't know how many guns are involved. Um usually until some kind of report is produced after the fact, if something goes catastrophically wrong. Um, but now we will lose that. Hmm. Alex Yablon, reporter focusing on guns for The Trace at thetrace.org. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Alex Yablon, A-L-E-X-Y-A-B-L-O-N. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Alex. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And that'll do it for District Sentinel Radio today. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Also, the Middle East Report at merip.org. We're back tomorrow. We're here in D.C. so that you don't have to be.